today on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We hit our stride in a rambling intro, and for us that's a good thing. We explore the fuzzy boundaries of generations and those pesky kinship ties. Our love of ICQ and avocado toast is no match for NHL 96. So we just might be Xennials. <laughs> it's, ba- it's a full chunk. It's basically, it's basically like uh, your nose and your belly button. <laughs> oh yeah, are, are like connected, right? So you can only just turn it. Yeah, out. yeah. You're you're turning your chakras. My chakras. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Your your line, your center line. My right? center. You're, you're moving your center. My center line. line is probably pretty crooked, right? Yeah. Now. No, I'm um, shoulders and earlobe turns. Like so, oh, my yeah. shoulders and earlobes have to remain together, and then it's like it's an upper, it's an upper back turn. Wow. Yeah. And um, is, is that how you have a good golf ass. swing or? Um, you know what, man, uh, for my golf swing, it's completely changed, right? Like obviously like everyone's golf swing when you're like 19, 20, 21, you're just like trying to bomb it. Right. But, um, I've really slowed things down and it's made me a lot more consistent and accurate with like my, my mid irons and my, my forward. It's called a heaven wood. Yeah. You will. Like we, uh, when we were at the driving range the other day and you told me just like slow it down a bit. Yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, I started them knocking, knocking them pretty. Yeah, good. well, you're swinging like freaking Frank Thomas, man. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> completely shallow, like just like ah, yeah. ah, and I'm like, hey, uh, can I give you a little tip yeah, there, like, bro? Uh, and you're like, no, no, this is my swing. I'm like, okay, man, okay. <laughs> I'm like, let me just make a little adjustment in your grip. <laughs> we'll just start there. <laughs> yeah, don't touch my grip. Don't touch my fucking grip. What's the What's the best aspect of your golf game? Would you say? Because everyone has one. Uh, lunch, That's a great thing. With lunch. Golf. I'm pretty good at lunch. Yeah. No. You told me you take like a nice hour, hour, and, hour and a half, half break. Yeah. yeah. I love it. That is hour, hour and a half break. Yeah. Um, I need to though. Like That's for, awesome. For my back and stuff, I need. I need the break at the. Uh, Did you the know? Um, like in Japan and Korea, obviously golf's very popular, and it's uh, much more of a wealthy person's yes, game, right? Absolutely. And um, the two-hour, three-hour lunch in between nines is um almost standard. It's so common. Oh wow. Yeah, and they all have like a. Which is weird, like a six course sort of like, oh, like meal. Yeah. But then, then you gotta go play golf. Oh, I would not be able to no, do that. No, no. Like but then think about what we're gonna be eating when we go out and play golf because we got like a rain hot, check, right? Yeah, like, like I, it's gonna probably be a couple hot dogs and mm-hmm. like maybe three beers. I love going to play golf in Quebec because you can get poutine. That's my favorite. Just sit like a rock for like five yeah. holes afterwards. And I, then I I've get done your it, second wind on seventeen. <laughs> yeah, I've done it once where I've had like a big poutine and hot dog lunch. Mm. Um, I find that uh, the next nine doesn't go as well. <laughs> like I don't know. I'm just kind of like in food coma. Yeah, of course and... you're supposed to eat like uh, trail mix and drink water and maybe have an apple or something. But yeah, like... I'll do that. So if we have an early tee off, so like let's say we tee off at six thirty or seven in the morning, I'll oh, I'll wow. start with apples and oranges. That's on exciting. Like the first, uh, first hole or two. Do you want to have? Do you want to go play like a ridiculously early I, round? I kind of like playing early again. I love it, man. Because like I, I hate it here. Like the, like I usually tee off at like ten thirty, eleven. So you're like golfing right through the hottest part of the day. Yeah. See, that's what I don't like. It's and, like full bug mode. And also because I need the hour and a half lunch. Uh, if we start earlier, mm. um, you know, you just go home earlier and carry on with your day. That's exciting. Like, I love golf, but I find sometimes it's tedious. Like, it's a, it can take all day, especially yeah. if you need to drive, like, an hour, an hour and a half yeah. to get somewhere. Yeah. And then, you know, you play through, that's about two, two and a half hours, an hour and a half break. Like, you're talking all day. Yeah, two, two and a half hours, bro. Talk, like, four just in terms of golf time if you're, like, playing a speedy round. 
And then you got your like hour and a half in there. That's like a eight hour day. That's yeah. like a full work day, man. Yeah. It is a full work day. Yeah. So anyway, enough about golf. <laughs> enough um, about golf. Yeah. What's new in your world? Uh, anything exciting happened to you since we last saw each other? Um, well, there's various baby stuff. Um, I guess I'll bore you a little bit, whatever. I'm proud Papa. Um, I think uh, she's full on recognizing as well. When um, we have a nice morning routine where, um, as I said on the previous one, where we like dance around and I sing music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what I'm really like proud of myself the last few days is that I've developed like the skills required to like coax her back into like a sleeping kind of state. Very neat. First thing in the morning. And that gives Melanie like sometimes like two extra hours, three extra hours in the morning to like sleep in. So she, she's sometimes able to wake up at like 10, 11 in the morning. Wow. So, Must be pretty appreciative of that. Um, yeah, how's, yeah. How, I hope how, she's listening to this. Hey, Mel, let me know. <laughs> how's her? Uh, how's no, her recovery? Well. Um, it's slower than she anticipated, um, and but there's various um, like medical things that like can be done. Like not medical. That sounds so drastic. Like um, various things that she can do to alleviate pain right. and stuff. It's um, honestly it's something that we didn't like. Obviously. Like you anticipate some recovery, but we didn't um, anticipate how long it was going to be and how much like doing little amounts of things takes out of her. So um, I don't know. I lesson learned. Yeah. So. But I'm doing all the things. I, I like making little runs out to like Walmarts and pharmacies to get her stuff. It makes me feel like I'm contributing. So have you uh, have you done a diaper run yet? Uh, yeah, I did that uh, yesterday. Actually, it's funny you bring that up. I went to Walmart because they have the cheapest diapers. I not a big fan of Walmart, but yeah. I keep finding myself drawn there like a moth to like a uh, an outside porch light. Um, well, uh, maybe next week we'll go over to Costco together. Yeah, that would be exciting. Um, she's almost out of the sort of newborn size, so yeah. Um, so I just bought like a smaller box, and and it was fun. I don't know. It's uh, I really have to like prepare myself before I walk into Walmart. I hate that place uh, so yeah, much. I don't like going <laughs> Screw to you, place. Walmart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Uh, so, uh, speaking of Walmart, I, re- I was reading a story yesterday from our Twitter feed mm. about, uh, have you heard of the new SNES classic release? Um, is that where they're coming out, out with the console again and, yeah. and like controllers? Yeah, I have yeah. heard about that. I know they did the NES um, like a few years ago as well. Like they came back out with the NES. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Well, was I, that your first like sort of system? It when was. Like, yeah, my, cool. It was the first system that I owned. So I had yeah. like friends and siblings who owned other systems like mm-hmm. the Atari and the regular NES. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a Sega, which was mm-hmm. exciting. I had a friend with a Sega. Sega um, Genesis? or Sega the Genesis, original? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Genesis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had um, a Sega Genesis. At one point, I had all the systems. I had, I, I, oh, even, had a those, tur- yeah. I even had a TurboGrafx-16. Nice. And I bought like three of them with uh, my own real estate weekly newspaper route. I think that was what it was called. It was like the real estate paper. Uh, those are still yeah. in existence. Yeah, man. seven bucks a week, baby. Uh, they're free now. Yeah, you can always get them for free. So, what do you think about the SNES? Well, uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting concept to come back with it. It definitely taps into the nostalgia, nostalgic <laughs> kind of, you know, feelings that we got playing it when we were young. But I just feel that, you know, sometimes it's nice to play um, like a, a a graphically pared down game. Mm-hmm. Um, so SNES is a good choice for that. Yeah. I, I personally love them because of my concussion symptoms. Like I, I can't play like call of duty, like 23, whatever the no, hell it's out right it, now. Yeah. It's like, it'd give me like a brain attack. I don't even yeah. know how to describe it. But, um, so I would always play over the years emulators on my computer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you, you lose something without that controller. 
Oh, right? you can get the SNES USB controller for emulators. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that. I had one of those. There, yeah. uh, it was amazing. It yeah. was great. Yeah, because I love my um, RPG games. Like uh, Chrono Trigger is my uh, one of my favorites. Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy. III. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you like Final Fantasy Mystic Quest? Have you ever played that? Uh, I didn't like it as much as three. Yeah, it was a, it was like um, some other game, and they like repurposed it yeah, and rebranded it yeah. after the success of Final Fantasy One. Right. Yeah, um, so, yeah. what games are you actually looking forward to coming out? Uh, well, like I have after the... we buy this. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> we'll buy I have it for the podcast. Like <laughs> I have the SNES system. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think so. Do you? you oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I like I have SNES a at home. Yeah, we, we've traded games before yeah, as well. Yeah. Oh, um, that's where they are. Okay, cool. <laughs> no, I, I gave them back. <laughs> we'll see. I gave them back. You you let me as soon as we're done this intro bro i'm gonna go check out your you, stash you, you let me donkey kong i gave it back uh i'm a big fan i know this is gonna sound lame but nhl 96 oh that's my favorite um, that's the one i'm really good at bro that's what i played growing up man um i had this game. like this kick-ass vancouver canucks team full of like all the buddies that i played street hockey with i made players for them and we just we used to like roll 27 one because we had kirk mclean in net i refused oh, to play yeah. the um awesome backup goalie i created um matt sanderson <laughs> oh yeah, he's a good one. Yeah, was he number one? Um, no, because Kirk McLean's number one. So I, I think I, um, no, I make him number four, and then I get rid of Jeff Cortnell. Uh, who needs Cortnell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of uh, sports, 14, sorry. Speaking of sports, did you hear the news? Uh, so we're recording this on uh, Friday, July twenty seventh. Uh, Thursday, July twenty seventh. Not Friday. I have no idea what day it is, bro. So it's don't Thursday. Worry. <laughs> okay. It's Thursday. Did you hear the news this morning uh, coming out of uh, my team, the the Habs? Oh no! What? Okay, I grabbed my head thinking it was a Yankees like no just, like no. Speaking of hockey, Bado Suna. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, Markov uh, is not going back into the Habs defensive lineup. Really? They're not signing him. No, God. and he's, he's how many gone. years has he been there? Like ten? He, uh, yeah, he's been like, there. He's been there forever. Right? I think since two thousand four. That's crazy. Uh, he has something like nine hundred and ninety games played with the Habs. Wow. Uh, so just shy of a thousand. What's his number? Do you know off the top of your head? I can't remember. Uh, is it? It's got to be something weird because uh, look it up for a sec. Because I was going to ask you, do you think they're going to retire Markov's number when it when all said and done? Like, do they have like a ring of honor? Uh, they do. Yeah, I know retiring numbers, but yeah, like the Canucks. Uh, we're such a new organization that we have this like bullshit ring of honor, and we have a few players whose numbers are retired as well. I don't think they they would. He's number number seventy nine. Yeah. I I don't think they would retire it's his number. number. No one's gonna wear it again. No, so we might as well retire it. And like, I, although like he's been a staple in Montreal, and mm. I think they're gonna like um, they're gonna miss him. Yeah. Um, he's like sure. probably I imagine like super quiet guy, like dependable defenseman, like. Is he like that, or was he like a flashy Russian kind of guy? Not sure. Last time we had drinks together, you know, he seemed pretty. Uh... You've had drinks? No, with Marco? I have not had drinks. Really? I, I don't know if he's flashy or calm, man. Really? I have no idea. I have you him had play drinks hockey. with Marco? No, I have not had. That's awesome. Okay, after no, this I intro, met. So the, my my claim to fame is that I uh, when I was younger, like maybe ten or eleven, um, Benoit Brunet came into yep. a restaurant that uh, we were at, and I got him to sign my hat. That's cool. And I talked to him for about like thirty seconds. That's cool. And I was like, "That's that's the big my big meet." That's awesome. My mom met Kirk McLean. She was at uh, the golf course um, picking my dad up, and she saw him across the parking lot. And she chased him down and got him to sign a sticky note, uh, like a post-it note. And I still have it. You still have those? Oh yeah, Kirk McLean's my hero, man. Oh wow. yeah, I love Captain Kirk. Uh, speaking of sports, yeah. Um, 
you shit your pants yesterday. Oh, yeah. Oh my goodness. So I was going outside for uh, a walk like late at night and um, I threw on Skip and Josh's uh, podcast. It's a sports podcast. Um, and I listen to them all the time and they're like, oh, just uh, before we start, uh, good shout out to Semi-Intellectual Musings and Matt and Phil. And I'm like, literally almost shit my pants. Just like when Violet was born where I felt like I'm like, oh, I'm losing control of my bowels because like, I've never, like, that was so unexpected. I didn't know it was coming. And I immediately called uh, called Phil, and uh, and he's like, oh, sorry, man, I should have told you. I'm like, bro, don't apologize. <laughs> like, it made my night. Like, it just oh, it blew my socks off. So yeah. uh, thank big thanks to Skip and Josh, man. And, and keep uh, up the good work. Love the podcast. So, so we've, and the new format. <laughs> we've, uh, yeah, love having you both in Montreal. Um, mm-hmm. So we've heard, uh, well, we told you guys how we decided how Matt and Phil came first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd like to know how uh, Skip and Josh came about. What's yeah, the, yeah. what's How did that ordering process happen? Yeah, I shouted that question at my ear pods as well. <laughs> uh, at your ear holes? At my uh, ear holes. <laughs> here's another podcast that we're going to shout out to, uh, Nerds with Words with Adam Nutter and Greg Trout. Uh, great podcast. Uh, they have really great guests on MMA fighters. Uh, they have uh, designers. They have people who started blogs. They have uh, authors of books. Uh, they're comedians, but sometimes it gets serious. But it's always a great listen. So, if they're uh, nerds who are into words, are they some? This is some sort of linguistics podcast, or like, how, how does that work? Like, what is it? What What do they talk about? Like, how is their approach? I think they use words into a microphone that goes into your ear holes. Really. That's, that's, that's how that works. That's oh, how the podcast uh, works. We should steal part of their name or something. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, and uh, another shout out to Juice in the Morning. Uh, we have a little promo from him. Juice here. Do you like music? Do you like film and television? Do you like sports? Do you like random topics and people? If you said no to all of these, Juice in the Morning is not the show for you. If you said yes to at least one of these, check out my show on iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Let's take over the world together, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Justin. You put on a great show, as always, and this is our third time promoing you because that's how much we love you. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Uh, if you want to reach us, we are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. Our email is semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. That includes the archives of the show. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play. Give us some ratings, give us some reviews, and while you're at it, head on over to Podchaser. Podchaser is the IMDb for podcasts. So if you don't like or you don't have iTunes, head over to Podchaser today and use promo code SIMPOD, S-I-M-P-O-D, for your free beta account. Uh, when we come back to the show, uh, we're going to be talking about generations. Exciting. Try to love you with all of my mind. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. It's Semi-Intellectual Musings. I'm your co-host, Phil. And Matt Sanderson. Matt has prepared for us an episode on generations and on kinship. Uh, So we're going to talk about how we are categorized as people in those, you know, Generation X, Baby Boomers, the Great Generation, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But Matt, why don't you kick us off, get us started. Uh, Why are we talking about it now? 
And, you know, what do you find interesting about it? Okay, so for whatever reason, I've always been interested in uh, the generational divides, especially in the 20th century. Um, My dad is a big fan of history, especially 20th century history. So he would talk about the different generations and he would refer to my grandfather's generation as the, the greatest generation. And those are the individuals who fought in World War II. Um, my dad, maybe, uh, he's, he's a baby boomer. He was born in 1950. Um, my sister is maybe Generation X, maybe a millennial and Generation Y. Kind of on the line. Yeah, and it starts getting murky in the sort of 80s, right? Because, yeah. And I think largely because technological change um, um, has like redefined these generational boundaries. So, um, so I've always been interested in generations. And then... Uh, maybe a couple months back, I heard this story out of Australia. He, um, Dan Woodman, he's an associate professor at the University of Melbourne, and he has um, coined a new generational category called the Xennials. The Xennials. What's an Xennial? So Xennial uh, took me a while to actually uh, remember the the category name this morning. Actually, when I was googling, um, so I'll actually spell it out for everybody. It's X-E-N-N-I-A-L. And an Xennial is anyone born between 1977 and 1983. Now, Dan Woodman, he um, went, like, did an interview for this website called Mamma Mia. It's an Australian Mama website. Mia. <laughs> I know. And um, this is actually uh, what was picked up in the Huffington Post. And it oh, became, kind of like, a pretty major, like, sort of one-day news story or whatever. And everyone's who was born within that time frame of 77 to 83... Um, was like, oh, do I fit into this new category? And it gave people like myself uh, who do fall into this, I was born in 82, um, a new category because we don't feel like we fit into the Generation X. We don't feel like we fit in with the millennials. So it's kind of like this perfect little category for us. Yeah. I I mean, I've never felt like I've fit in uh, with the category of millennial. When were you born? But I'm in 86. 86, yeah. um, like, I don't think of you as a millennial. But like then I, a lot of things that I do culturally have resonance with millennials. Yeah, like drinking tea out of a mason jar and stuff like that. Yeah, I Avocado do that. sandwiches as well. Uh, or avocado toast. Yeah, Wasn't that on the last one? Avocado toast, I'll <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah, and um, I'm the same way. Like, I feel like I, you know, I can grow a reasonable beard. I I um, am pretty, like, internet savvy. You're way more than I am. But so even within this new category that uh, Woodman has defined it's already murky again. And this is what I love about generations actually, because when we say generational divides, the divides are not like set in stone and that's the, like everything else in social science. But, um, so how does Woodman, uh, differentiate the Xennials from the millennials? So, um, the idea is that it's this, uh, in between group between generation X and the millennials. Um, so there's some quotes from this website that I can just sort of read off. Um, Think of as the depressed flannelite shirt-wearing grunge-listening children that came after the baby boomers and the millennials who get described as optimistic, tech-savvy, and maybe a little bit too sure of themselves and too confident, uh, Woodman told the Mamma Mia website. Um, So he uh, also points to technology. So around technology, they do have a particular experience. We hit this social media and the IT digital technology boon in our 20s. So like anyone who hit the um, information like tech boom uh, in their early 20s or in their uh, late teens would fit within this group. See, like I remember being on uh, MSN chat uh, and mm-hmm. I must have been maybe 12. Yeah, I used ICQ. Yeah, so that's yeah maybe before that's that ICQ, I, yeah, I was yeah. on ICQ as well. Yeah. And um, things other, like, so we'll point to th- some things. I remember uh, we'll call it file sharing, yeah. <laughs> uh, piracy. Napster. I remember when piracy started. I remember 
stealing AOL CDs from mailboxes so you can get that free 30 minutes of internet That's time. That's right, yeah. Um, so I remember the internet starting, but I'm also, I happen to have two uncles who were like computer guys. Um, so I had a, com- a PC um, back when I was like three years old and right, I was like yeah. typing in a DOS when I was like yeah. five. Yeah, so I had like, something like that too at home. Yeah, so um, so it's kind of interesting. They'll point to these either technological uh, changes or what's more common is historical events and warfare are how we normally define generations. Um, I'll just say off the top, generations used to be every 10 to 15 years. They would usually mimic like the school year, I would say, like a school career, like the 12 years of a school year, I would say. But then even then you're like, well, then there's some generations that are like five years like in span or some that are eight or some that are like 12. So even the um, the time divisions are pretty murky as well. Now, the idea of generations doesn't come from uh, Woodman. Um, no. You know, my experience is that um, it comes from Strauss and Howe. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And um, I didn't know this either when I was doing the research for this episode. Um, I came across these two names. So um, Strauss and Howe, it's uh, William Strauss and um, Neil Howe, and um, we think they might be sociologists, so we might have to look that up. Uh, I'm pretty sure they are. It seems yeah. like they are, like considering yeah. these books that they wrote. I'm, I'm like 99.99% sure they are. Oh, so there's there's a chance. Well, one of them might be called like a social <laughs> a cult- anthropologist yeah, or cultural, cultural studies. studies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, so they wrote... Um, three or four influential books. The first one was uh, published in 1991 and is simply called Generations. Um, and this is where they traced um, the history of the United States through successive Anglo-American generational biographies, all the way back to 1584 and up to the present. Um, so this is where they put forth their uh, theory of these generational divides and, and what constitutes a generation and so forth. And then in 1993, they... Um, published their follow-up book, and this is where they sort of define the Generation Xers. Um, And the Gen Xers, they say, are born between 1961 and 1981. So that's a 20-year span. Um, So that's actually kind of long. Um, They are the, they're also called the 13ers because they're the 13th generation since the American Revolution. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So I don't know if that's ominous or not. Um, But then in... 1997, they um, published another book that was just like they crystallized their theory and like just sort of flushed some stuff out, like returned to their first book. And then in 2000, um, they published their fourth book and it's called um, Millennials Rising. And this is obviously where they define the millennial class. And what's interesting about this book is 2000, right? And that's my graduating year. And that's where the millennials are usually um, identified. That's the um, so it would be anyone born in 1982 and up till, um, like, I guess, 1994 or so. Right. Yeah. And I've also heard of 9-11. So 2001 mm-hmm. being kind of a pivotal moment in how we define generations. Yeah. And that's something that I encountered as a TA. Like, I would look out at my undergrad class and then maybe the fourth year I was being a TA or the fifth year I was looking at them. I'm like, okay, these people are clearly not in my generation anymore. Like... I'm part of something different. And one of the things that I thought of was, oh, they were, they were like five when 9-11 happened. Yeah. So they don't know a world without global terrorism. Yeah. Right. So and when the we, responses too, right? Exactly. So when we were going to high school, it was more, the fear was like school shootings and um, drugs, drugs coming in yeah. and 
like unprotected sex and um and then the only terrorists we saw were on like ram in like rambo movies and stuff right yeah and they were really easy to kill so yeah <laughs> and like uh, the conception in well from my experience anyway like in the james bond sort of style um those lingering cold war fears or anxieties around foreign terror um typically involved white people uh post 9-11 when you talk to students about terror international terror they're all pointing to the middle east that's true and it's also the like philosophical idea of terrorism is a new thing too it's entered the zeitgeist because that is something that's also hard to define like yeah, would you yeah. call a domestic terrorist a terrorist um that's one of those classic debates or are yeah. the only terrorists the people who have brown skin from the middle east right yeah you know so, so. i think um with that we can start to unravel this idea of generations a bit. Um, so like, um, does social class or standing, for example, matter in how we define or how we feel a part of our generation or a generation? Yeah, that's a thought I actually had uh, driving up here. Um, when we think of, I'll return to the greatest generation, like my grandfather's generation, the veterans of World War II. Um, when we think of that generation, we think of the men who went and fought. And then they came back and like rebuilt, I guess, North America, Western Europe um, after World War II. And we call them great for this reason. But what about the women who had to go back into the homes after, you know, working yep. for a number of years? Or um, just also um, women, maybe they weren't working in factories, but they're doing a lot of like ancillary things, whether it was collecting donations or um, rationing themselves all for the war, war effort. And then when, World War II ends, it's like a loss of purpose, right? Yep. So the governments of the day, uh, Canada had a similar program to the American GI Bill. That's how my grandpa got his farm. Um, and they, the men got social supports and government programs to rebuild their lives and the communities. And women were just sort of expect to like go back to the 1800s. Yeah, and I think like focusing on gender and social class, um, can kind of make the definition of gender a little fuzzy. Um, so like, you know, the idea of generations comes from um, 1863, French uh, lexiographer Emile Littré, and he kind of defined generations as all men living more or less at the same time. Now, what you've just described, so let's let's change all men to people. Yeah, all humans. Uh, all or humans whatever. or whatever. Yeah. But what you just described is clearly... Uh, like what we would maybe call a generational divide. Those who went to war, those who didn't. So oh, the, women, the yeah. women who are even the same age as, mm. um, in this case, men who come back from war, aren't necessarily part of that generation. They're not the war vets generation, right? For sure. So, and two more um, sort of like social classes, quote unquote, that we can add to that are um, those men who served in the army, but maybe were like mechanics or worked in an air, airplane hangar or whatever, their ground crew. Um, they weren't considered as veterans, as the vets that are actually combat vets. And then um, the other category are those who, for whatever reason, were deemed unfit for service. Yeah. And then you can just throw in their race and ethnicity as well. So certain um, races of people, certain cultures were not allowed to participate. But then as the war uh, lingered on the British started like drawing from the colonies right so um, like my grandpa for example served with Sikhs 
And it was something I remember early on uh, saying, he was saying how like brave and strong of warriors they were. And when I say that to my friends back home, my, my Punjabi friends, um, like it brings a real smile to their face because they're like, yes, like we're getting recognized. Like we did right. have service yeah. people there too. Yep. So it but is the, interesting. What's interesting, well, for it's, me It's like anyway. social exclusion in a way, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but these categories of generations uh, get applied retrospectively. So when you're in the moment, we can create these divides, but then, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years later, they all just become the generation of the war, if they participated or not. Um, so reflexively or retroactively, we can apply a notion of a generation uh, to a group of people. Yeah. And um, I pulled up, um, it's actually a really interesting Wikipedia page. Um, if you look in um, for cultural generations, like if you put that into the search term, um, it'll come up. And at the bottom, there's an A to Z, Z list of all these various generations, like more than half of them I've never even yeah, heard of. Yeah, there's some really micro ones. Yeah, there. and um, some are culturally specific and um, contextually specific. So where and when you were born um, and who, what type of person you are and what your experiences in your life were retrospectively um, will change your definition um, the definition of your generation, right? So um, a couple that I just found kind of interesting, um, one from uh, the Soviet Union, um, from Russia, um, people born between 1925 and 1945, they're called the Sixters, so S-I-X-T-I-E-R-S, <laughs> Sixters. The Sixters. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're known as the, uh, the next generation of intelligentsia, people who would oh. work in the... Um, Khrushchev thaw era, so in the in the fifties when Khrushchev and JFK were going at it, um, um, so they were they're defined because of the purges that happened in the early twenties, right? Um, so the purges that happened in the early Soviet period um, paved the way for this new intelligentsia class because somebody had to work in the government that killed off everybody else who was going to work. So they're defined based on a purge. There's another one that I found from China that is, um, it's a uh, sixth generation, sixth generation model based on, it started with the um, start of Mao in the 30s. Um, and then the second generation is like on Mao's death. And, and so that's based around a dictator's life and the um, socio-political system that he set into place. So uh, is it possible that we will, in the future, have a generation that spans from something like 2016 to, um, I don't know, probably 2020 or before that, and maybe call them like the trumpeters or something like that? It, it could be. It could be, especially if I would say um, I'd go with you on this because I'm like, you know, social science fiction. Here we go. Uh, um, we're well, writing our social science fiction yeah. book, The Trumpites. Um, the Trumpites. So I would say something like that would happen if um, America factioned up into um, uh, distinct like geographical regions. And it was like rather than one state versus the other state, like Nebraska versus Oklahoma or something, it would be like the Midwest versus the Pacific versus the East Coast versus the Southwest. And if that sort of situation happened in America, um, then, yeah, for sure. He would be the instigator of it. 
the the word factions there just kind of sent chills up and down my oh, it my, should. my spine. It should. Yeah. It, it, you know. Yeah. Anyway, we won't we, we won't oh, make this about politics. My, right now. Mind you, we'll take uh, Idaho and Washington State and Oregon if that happens as well in British Columbia. We'll Are take those, them and we'll split off with those Alberta. just for their NCAA stars or Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really like the Oregon Ducks actually. <laughs> I think I, they got oh. a good vibe. I really love their uniforms. <laughs> um now, okay. So Generations are distinct uh, and distinguished from kinship. Another mm-hmm. kind of term that gets thrown around around when we talk about uh, these sorts of, of groups of people. Um, what, how would you define kinship, Matt? Okay, so kinship is um, a term that is like classic in anthropology. Um, not as popular anymore, but um, basically kinship is your familial lines. And it doesn't always have to be based on your actual biological family. It can also be like cousin brothers and like uncle brothers that, or aunt sisters, I suppose as well, um, who are tied to your family through like social relationships. Um, so anthropologists study this because it's a really quick um, way to get a kind of lay of the land of all the different social relationships that are happening because and then in um, certain groups like uh, who are not as like urbanized, I say, I guess you could say, um, these social relationships are really the um, difference between uh, life and death. You know, they're they're for survival. So if your particular region is going through, say, a drought, um, and you have some relatives in a further off region that's closer to a river. Um, you would have a reason to go over there and move your entire group over. So so usually for survival purposes. So um, when I uh, teach uh, this chapter in Intro to Soch, Mm -hmm. um, the kind of definition that I use is um, for kinship is a social network of people based on common ancestry, marriage, or adoption. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like the expanded uh, use of the or adoption uh, sure. In there, I think it's quite uh, contemporary. It allows us to uh, also include uh, various forms of families, mm. uh, various forms of sexual orientations and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So what, what what do you think about expanding that kind of base definition of kinship as being matrilineal or patrilineal? Mm. For sure. And um, that is a good point uh, to focus on. Um, so in a lot of... Um, uh, groups that are maybe, let's say, living closer to the land um, where you can just get bitten by something and get poisoned, um, there's um, there's a real need to be able to adopt people and um, adopt children and even adopt, like, adolescents as well. Um, so in every culture that is studied by anthropology, there is some sort of, like, mechanism for adoption as well. Um, so that's a really good point. So there's other categories that anthropologists have uh, noted, and Phil mentioned as well that there's uh, kinship is a valid concept in sociology. So, boom, learn something new today again. Um, so I wrote, um, so most people will be familiar with Paul. Uh, patrilineal and matrilineal lines. So matrilineal is when um, inheritance and um, importance basically goes down the mother's side and uh, patrilineal is down the father's side. Um, Most agricultural-based societies actually are patrilineal and that is in relation to land ownership and inheritance. And um, the reason for that is that um, if you have an enforced monogamy on women, basically. Um, so if you can trust that they're not uh, cheating on you, um, 
then you are, can be certain who the father of those children are. So you can draw those lines really clearly, and you need to do that in property ownership. Whereas um, many indigenous groups are matrilineal because it's so much easier to determine who the mother is. Right. Yeah. yeah so. And there's so, other there's kind of other forms of those arrangements. So like we have like. A, oh, can I? Uh, I had one that I'll have, and then yeah, I know you got yeah, a few go as well. Yeah. Um, so the one that's like one of the most salacious ones, I guess, um, is polyandry, and that is when um, multiple male partners um, sleep with one female partner, and um, the reason for this is that it confuses the descent lines, and it makes um, the men more invested, like in the offspring. So rather than just having one father, you have like seven potential, like, who knows, maybe I'm the father fathers, right? So that you have seven men also looking out for that kid. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you call it salacious, but on the other hand, I think there's probably a view that says um, it's up to women to decide who they marry. And for if sure, they I, have I call it partners, then that's up to them. Yeah. And that's a, that's a valid little point, And I'll just keep this short, but I say salacious just because um, sometimes anthropologists and probably anthropologists in the past, let's say, would highlight the salacious yeah, stuff yeah. to try to sell ethnographies. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm being a little critical of my own discipline yeah. at that point. Yeah. And I get your point about um, it being a harder time to draw the familiar lines, either patriarchal or matriarchal. Uh, when you have this sort of arrangement like that. Yeah. Although I, I guess one would argue that contemporary technologies allow us to do paternity tests and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's where, um, and then that's like the encroachment of science coming into like these questions of debate and yeah. like any, um, what is it, Maury Povich? You are not the father, right? right. Oh, yeah. right? And it's always, um, who is the father? Who is the father? Because we know who the mother is. Yeah. <laughs> Baby came out of her. Baby came out of her. Yeah, go ask um, my wife. <laughs> Uh, okay. So you have some. Uh, I, I do have categories. something, and it ties a little bit into that. Cool. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about Herbert Spencer. Now, um, a lot of people shit on Herbert Spencer mm-hmm. uh, for being kind of the pioneer of social Darwinism, and he's he's from like the late eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah. So yeah. the book, the the kind of text that I want to talk about is is eighteen seventy four or eighteen seventy six Principles of Sociology. I th- believe it was in three volumes. Mm, it's like the classic textbook from back then, right? Well, it kind of is. And I don't think it gets the attention that um, it had at one point, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, not a lot of people go back to read Spencer. Mm-hmm. They probably write him off as some sort of evolutionary thinker, uh, similar to all the thinkers at that time. Yeah, they're all yeah. Influenced I think, by Darwin in one way or another. Exactly. I think there's a huge uh, contingent of sociologists who've never read uh, those kind of classic texts mm-hmm. on the premise that they know the outcome of it. Um, so I don't want to read someone who's going to advocate for, um, you know, a social order, uh, that is discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, and I agree with that. However, yeah. I still think it is important to kind of read these people, um, because they say other things too. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so Herbert Spencer, um, in principles of sociology, he talks about kinship, which is interesting. Cool. Um, and he does so through, um, a discussion around what he calls principal institutions. So he lists, he gives us five uh, principal human institutions. Those are kinship, ceremony, politics, religion, and economy. Hmm. So I want to focus on that first one, the kinship, sure. um, and you'll 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 kind of see why. So Spencer, because the topic is kinship. <laughs> well, that and it's also and. well, he also yeah. kind of lays it out as the the foundation for the other institutions, the four other ones. That's how anthropologists typically approach it as well. That yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah. So Spencer argues that kinship emerges 
to meet the most basic need of all species, reproduction. Mm. So as such, um, kinship becomes one of the first human institutions, right? Mm. So kinship involves the regulation of reproduction, which also involves the control of sexual activity, uh, the development of more permanent bonds between men and women, and the provision of a safe context for the rearing of children. Without these, a population cannot um, exist for very long, cannot survive yeah. for very long, right? Yeah, like the polyandry groups with multiple male partners is exactly for that purpose, is literally for survival. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so three things that Spencer says about kingship that I kind of find important. Uh, so the first one is, in the absence of alternative ways of organizing a population, kinship processes will become the principal mechanism of social integration. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, principal mechanism of social integration. Yeah, and that's... Um, in the absence of alternative forms of organizing. Mm. And so do you think in our hyper-organized, uh, you know, post-industrial society, um, is kinship waning or in importance or... Um, increasing in importance. I don't know what the opposite of waning is, but like, is that kind of where we're getting at? Like, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, living in Canada in 2017, we do have all uh, alternative forms of uh, social organization. And because um, oftentimes when you'd read academics of the 80s and 90s, when they're talking about the family, um, they talk about the nuclear family, right? And they're... Uh, um, you know, com- not complaining, I guess, um, critical that um, we're losing our wider familial and community uh, networks. So those are the non-biological families, but in your kinship sort of network. Um, those are starting to get severed as we're getting more focused on the home. Now, I would argue in, you know, post 9-11 world that we're in, um, even the nuclear family bonds are starting to fall apart. And we've got a over 50% divorce rate. And um, you see a lot of people who like younger people who are willing to be critical about their parents in a way that like, not like, Oh, we should respect our elders, but it's interesting. I never really thought of this before, but it's kind of interesting to think that the nuclear family perhaps is starting to break down. Like we saw in the eighties and nineties with the wider networks. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what Spencer's saying is that, um, you know, an alternative way of organizing could and was uh, the nuclear family. Mm. Um, But the nuclear family had a lot of presumptions involved in it, right? So one of the presumptions was that it is a male and a female head of household. It is a patriarchal household. Um, Both adults um, are productive in a certain way, uh, rather Mm. that be uh, outside the home or in the domestic sphere. Yeah, like set in stone kind of roles, right? children needed to be Reared, so the the one of the key elements of a nuclear family is that there are children. Um, now, another key element of a nuclear family, and you see it in cultural reproductions of it, is that there's the white picket fence. It's the Joneses, mm. right? So they are up to speed with the newest technologies in the house. They have a car, maybe two cars. Uh, they're relatively well read. Um, so, like the nuclear family holds a lot of stuff in it. That I think, um, you know, our generation, definitely millennials, baby boomers could start to question, mm. um, for one, uh, sexual orientation in the nuclear family uh, has, you know, basically devastated that that model. So you can't have a, a prototypical nuclear family with a same-sex couple. Um, you just can't. The definition of nuclear family doesn't allow for it. So I think a lot of the pressures around the nuclear family are because of social 
changes that have happened, mm. uh, namely around human rights. Yeah, and if we people went back and listened to the protest and political music song, I'm thinking of uh, Little Boxes by uh, Pete Seeger. Um, that was released in the early 50s, and he was already like punching holes in this idea of the white picket fence, nuclear family, Joneses, right? And then uh, that song, You Don't Own Me, right? Where um, it's a female singer saying, like, don't parade me around like a possession. I have my own freedom of choice and free will, essentially. So that's also punching holes in this gendered idea. And those are really early songs for that. Yep. And now we're in a state where, you know, because information is more accessible, um, that's what I'm getting at. I think with um, we're willing to challenge our ed- elders and say, maybe we don't want like a white pick offense and a heterosexual union with 2.5 children. Yeah. Well, Spencer's second point kind of um, extends on that. And he's, you know, again, talking in the 1870s. So his second point is the greater the size of a population without alternative ways of organizing activity, the more elaborate will be the kinship system and the more it will reveal explicit rules of descent, marriage and endogamy and exogamy. Yeah. Yeah. Like people coming in and leaving your your group. Um, and, um, that actually holds true. And if you look at, um, these kinship, um, networks of, uh, so-called, and I'm really air quoting here, primitive groups that they used to be called. And, um, some people still think of them as this, look at their kinship networks. I was ain't nothing primitive about that. They are very sophisticated and they stretch hundreds of kilometers in various directions. And, um, you can also look at historical examples, um, the Haida, um, the Coast Salish people, um, around my area, um, they they have very sophisticated matrilineal um, kinship networks. Um, so, yeah, I would uh, I would totally agree with her, uh, Spencer there. Do you have a yep. point there? And now, his third point, I think, gets us um, eerily close uh, to something that we mentioned on the last episode around social science fiction. Um, and maybe this is because I've been enjoying Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Um, But Spencer's third point about kinship is those societies that engage in perpetual conflict will tend to create patrilineal descent systems and patriarchic authority. As a consequence, they will reveal less equality between the sexes and will be more likely to define and treat women as property. Hmm. So in the 1870s, you have Herbert Spencer, who is today labeled as kind of a backwards sort of thinker, basically spelling out what could happen if alternative arrangements for family are not offered. So if you have a society that engage in perpetual conflict, so we're, let's, let's think of societies that are always at war, uh, like nations the, always yeah, at like war. Like the Romans or something like this. Yeah. Sure. The, the how, Greeks perhaps. How Greeks. about the United States? Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Good oh, point, Phil. <laughs> uh, so they tend to create patrilineal descent systems, which is in existence. Mm-hmm. We have that. And patriarchic authority. So, you know, thinking back to Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, uh, it's dystopian, but you have this group of men who basically overthrow Congress, the Senate, and the U.S. president in their liberal democratic state, and they institute kind of a religious uh, authoritarian um, kind of system uh, where women become property of men uh, to reproduce and have babies. So the handmaid is basically a carrier uh, to reproduce and have babies. Uh, They're given no rights. Uh, no women don't have any rights at all. 
Um, so yeah, you know, it's kind of eerie that, uh, you have Spencer talking about something like that. So I don't know if you heard that pop on the microphone because that was a synapse being uh, formed there because I made a crazy connection. I just saw recently the movie is called the lobster. Have you seen it at all? No, no. Um, so it's very similar to the handmaid's tale. Um, it's, uh, set maybe 10 years in the future and uh, the society has been reorganized to put a lot of emphasis on married couple unions and if you are not married within a certain amount of time after getting divorced or being widowed um, you are turned into an animal of your own choosing oh wow and then released out in the woods so it's called the lobster because the main character I think it's uh, becomes a lobster yeah he chooses to become a lobster I don't know how it ends um, actually that's not even a spoiler like I actually don't know how it ends wow. um, and that's one of the cool it's very good and it's um, all about that like the ownership of women and stuff and also women trying to gain ownership of men yeah now it would seem to me that we can combine the idea of generations and kingship in um, certain ways but let's explore this avenue let's explore avenues where generations uh, have been defined by the level or the depth of social organization around families. Mm. Um, mm. And, I, and I think it's a productive kind of line of thought to think about that. That's really interesting, man. I would never have like went down that route. It was like, everyone take a shot now because I just said I would never have thought of that, Phil. Good one. Um, no, I think that's really interesting because um, the the greatest generation and then the baby boomers, they came mostly from like these nuclear family kind of relationships, right? Now, the, but the greatest generation had pressure on the, the, the family makeup because you had a lot of men that were at war. You had women assuming various posts outside of mm. the domestic sphere. And do you think because, like my grandpa lost his brother in the, the war, um, do you think literally having families torn apart by death in, in conflict... Um, do you think that created an impetus to like further solidify the nuclear family, which is like, you know, mom, dad, and however many kids? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, potentially. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure if the nuclear family is a result of the war or if it's an anticipation of future wars. Um, mm -hmm. So again, mm -hmm. like let's, let's not, the, the point that Spencer gives us is that societies that are in perpetual conflict develop these sorts of mechanisms, right? So if there's a kind of sentiment that we are living in a society that is at perpetual conflict, then our institutions of family can be reorganized to account for that. So what if um so what if uh, we're in a situation where there is no property inheritance to pass down as well because in the 50s like is reasonable by home shit. My parents had like two homes before we yeah. were even born, right? Yeah. Um, and so there is not that sort of landed gentry sort of inheritance that you yeah. can pass yeah. down. Um, so what happens to patrilineal descent lines um, and also notions of masculinity when yeah. you're in a situation where there's constant conflict, uh, notions of masculinity are thrown into question as well. And uh, I think we are venturing into the territory of gender studies that yeah, takes sure. kinship uh, family relations and generations very seriously. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into it, um, too much, but, uh, there's kind of like five key kind of sociological theories, um, and feminist perspectives and postmodern perspectives are where gender studies kind of come in and give us a lot of clues and give us a lot of interesting, um, ways of seeing how family is currently organized. Mm. Yeah. And there's, um, with, so, 
I was uh, just going to put fill in the spot. Yeah, I'd never do this to you, man. Hey, sum up postmodernism in 30 seconds. But essentially, I'd say the confluence of postmodernity and feminism and gender studies is um, around um, ideas of choice and freedom. Um, and in this context, we're talking about um, freedom of choice and definitions that you make. So, like, we're in a situation now where men and women, you know, um, are supposed to be able to have these freedoms of choice. Now, when we say, say everything's honky-dory and everything's happy and everyone's got free choices, then you overlook all the structural inequalities that are still present, right? And in a society where there's constant conflict, um, that's terrible for the economy. Um, wars are only good for the economy when they're like six months long, you know, and when they're stretching out over what have we been fighting terrorists since 2001? Um, and we only had six, seven years after the fall of the Soviet Union of like not fighting terrorists and look at the, look at the state of the economy in the mid nineties, it was booming. Right. And that was when a lot of the post-modernity and feminism and gender studies was burgeoning because a lot it seemed a lot more hopeful and possible at that time. Now we're in a situation, I would say, it's a little kind of cynical, we're in a bleak sort of situation where the possibilities and the freedoms of choices are there, but they're also restricted. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, you know, uh, scholastically anyway, looking at something through a postmodern lens involves picking up on fragmentations um, and also drawing attention to um, blurred boundaries or blurred lines between things. Mm. So even like uh, something like the notion of a generation, which uh, how we started off the podcast, yeah. uh, can be blurred, can be made to feel a bit strange. Yeah. So um, it's a really yeah. good point, man. It's like um, I brought that up that, oh, these divides are way blurry. And isn't that the way everything is in social life and social sciences? I mean, that's just me screaming out post-modernity into the microphone, right? So. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, like, bringing it back around kind of point there. Yeah, and the last little kind of, I guess, point that I want to draw attention to is um, a sociologist, uh, Arlie Horschild. Um, probably heard of her in anthropology mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. across social sciences. Yeah. And she comes up with the idea of the second shift. Um, and the second shift as an organizing principle in analytic and social sciences has been extremely uh, important mm -hmm. to be able to understand domestic labor, women's role in the domestic sphere and the kind of added uh, work that is needed to work outside of the, the job and in the household. Um, so I think, you know, when we're talking about generations, families, kinship, the idea of the second shift um, is something that must not be kind of forgotten. And um, just so I'm sure, and I'm sure other listeners may not know, um, the second shift is this idea that you and correct me if I'm wrong, please, um, where you, you work a shift in the domestic sphere and then you're working outside? Is that Yeah, idea? so they do a shift of domestic sphere work or work in the home after they've worked outside of the home at like a monetarily paying job. And like, you know, a lot of social scientists um, and humanists have picked up on this concept mm. and have, you know, extended it to things like the glass ceiling. They've extended it to... Um, other concepts mm -hmm. that really shed light on women's devaluation uh, mm -hmm. in both the domestic and uh, outside of the domestic sphere. And the devaluation is the key term there. As I just took that right out of my mouth, but um, um, that's what it. Uh, why this concept was so powerful is because it showed that women's work is devalued both in the domestic sphere and outside the domestic sphere, and um, it's a way of bringing more value and recognition to their work. So, like, it does both moves at the same time. That's yeah. why it's so powerful. Yeah. 
Do you have anything else to add on uh, generations, kinship, uh, familiar? Bro, we covered way more than I thought we were going to. Well, so, awesome. um, yeah, this is a really interesting episode. Thanks, bud. It, it really was. Um, thanks, Matt, for putting the groundwork together for this. It's been yeah. a while since I've talked about it, and it's always fun to, to revisit these ideas. Well, thanks, um, if so tell, you, tell them how we can uh, they can reach us. There if you, you want to reach <laughs> us, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or considerations, you can get into contact with us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website with the archives of the show uh, is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, while you're giving us your great review, why don't you head on over to our Facebook page at The Simpod and leave us a comment, give us a question, and we'll try to get back to you. Yeah, that'd be really cool. And we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we're going to have some recommendations for you. Looking forward to it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Matt and Phil here. We have some recommendations for you. Matt, uh, why don't you kick us off with uh, what, what you got for us this week? Okay, I'm pulling up my phone, but it's not a podcast this time because I've been oh, informed. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I've been informed that I <laughs> recommend too many podcasts. Uh, uh, so I actually have a book that I am still kind of working my way through. It's like 800 pages long or something. It's called uh, Mao, the, Un- uh, the Untold Story. So Mao, M-A-O, the, the Chinese dictator. And who's that by? Um, it's by John Halliday, H-A-L-L-I-D-A-Y, and uh, Jung, uh, sorry, Jung Chang, so J-U-N-G-C-H-A-N-G. And um, it's uh, a biography of Mao, and it starts from his birth, and I am up to um, the last years of his life, so the last few chapters, um, and it's fascinating. It's um, very well-researched. Um, a lot of first-person interviews. They went back to China and interviewed all these former party cadres and stuff. Oh, very and, neat. Um, it was fascinating. I've read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Yep. And I want to read a book on Stalin now um, to sort of complete my three-part dictator. Yep, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hook you up with a Stalin book for sure. I'm super excited about that. Don't judge us, uh, listeners. No, no, no judging, no judging. Yeah. Uh, my recommendations is a bit weird. Uh, but I think uh, our listeners will understand. He's shooting me a sideways glance, so we'll see where this goes. So I want to recommend uh, Clover Seed uh, for oh. lawns. Okay. Uh, cool. In particular, the, now we've talked about this uh, before. We talked about the little project that I have, uh, little in air quotes, the yeah. little project to redo the front lawn. Yeah, my, crimson, uh, and, my, my, crimson my, and clover, right? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. Uh, but I want to recommend it's a Dutch white clover seed uh, okay, cool. sold by the company by the name of Gloco, G-L-O-C-O. They're a Quebec-based uh, seed producer. They've been doing it since 1919. And then in 1960, they got into the residential seed business. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I find really fascinating about their Dutch white clover is it took really well. Mm. So like within a matter of a week, uh, there are sprouts and now it's uh, about two months old and it's expanding um, in the front. So it's about, um, you know, 3,700 square feet in the front. Yeah. And you said you were um, 
mowing it constantly. And I got to cut it like twice a week, man. And describe what they do to the uh, weeds. Yeah. So what I've been noticing is if I let it go a bit longer, uh, it chokes out some of the invasive weeds. So like it grows bigger kind of leaves. So the, 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 the three kind of leaves that comes off the clover are thicker, they're broader to kind of, I guess, smother uh, the weed. But then they start also wrapping itself around the weed stem. Yeah. Um, so it, it was really cool. He pointed out a few of these when we were uh, just before recording this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Recommend this. Yeah. So like um, hardly any water to get it going. Mm. It needs to just stay moist, uh, yeah. but it gets going pretty good. And the idea with uh, planting the clover, if uh, somebody's a new listener, um, was because he wants to like fortify these terraces that he has in front for his septic tank and things like this. So he needed something that would grow fast, but also hold the dirt down because... Of erosion and whatnot. Yeah, and it's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, oh. Now, it's not the best, clover isn't the best uh, for a grass uh, or a lawn alternative if you want to play on it. So if you want to do lots of running, lots of activity, mm-hmm. like uh, playing soccer or baseball on it, it doesn't respond the best. But if you have an area that uh, doesn't get walked on a lot and needs something green all summer, highly recommend uh, the Dutch white clover seed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the Gloco company, I, I don't know why their seed is different, but my neighbors have used Dutch white clover as well in their lawns. And now their lawns have gone to flower at least twice this summer, and mine hasn't. Interesting. Um, so it hasn't flowered. It's just nice and green. That's cool. Yeah. So, and that's, so it's giving you everything you're looking for. It's basically ground cover and something with a strong root structure. Absolutely. Yeah. So oh, it was pretty good. Way to go, Gloco. Gloco. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, or considerations for us, you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. Our email address is semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com, where you will also find the archives of the show. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, or Podcatcher of Choice. So please leave us some ratings and reviews. It really helps the show. And while you're doing so, check us out on Facebook at The SimPod. Like our posts uh, and uh, give us some comments there. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week.